0: Hello, and welcome to the Emirates MBD Market Matters podcast. I'm Edward Bell, Senior Director for Market Economics, and this week we'll be taking a deep dive into OPEC and the outlook for oil markets. Oil markets have gone through enormously turbulent year and a half, and as we're recording this in the third week of July 2021, Brent oil futures are hovering a little under $70 a barrel. One year ago, they were trading around $44 a barrel. The negative demand shock caused by the COVID-19 pandemic has really been unprecedented and required substantial adjustment from the supply side of the market. The demand picture is definitely starting to turn around. People are driving and flying more as economies reopen and vaccines have an impact on getting life back closer to pre-pandemic levels of activity. But the increase in oil prices really looks to be caused by the ongoing supply adjustments undertaken by producers in the US, Canada, and elsewhere, but most crucially, by countries that are part of the OPEC Plus Alliance. To help us get a sense of what steps OPEC Plus has taken so far and where we go next, I'm pleased to be joined by Dr. Bassam Fatou, Director of the Oxford Institute of Energy Studies and a professor at the School of Oriental and African Studies in London. Bassam is a highly esteemed energy systems analyst with a focus on energy policy, the structure of oil pricing, and of particular interest to us today, OPEC behavior. So welcome, Bassam.
1: Thank you, Edward, for having me.
0: To get us started, I think many market observers, particularly those that aren't wholly focused on oil and energy markets, tend to look at OPEC Plus as a kind of 2020 phenomenon. This club of Russia, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Iraq, and others who meet and agree or disagree on production levels. But in fact, OPEC Plus was set up at the end of 2016 under a declaration of cooperation where producers like Russia, Kazakhstan, Oman, and others joined the core OPEC countries to address what they viewed as market imbalances. Since that time, and I suppose really drilling into the last year and a half, what do you think the biggest achievement OPEC Plus has had? What's really been its biggest impact on oil markets?
1: Um, I don't think it's only one achievement, uh, but I would say a series of related factors allowed OPEC Plus to play an effective role in dealing with the COVID-19 shock, uh, first of course is the high compliance of OPEC Plus, uh, despite the historical size of the, agreed, uh, of the agreed cut, and despite excluding from the agreement countries suffering from output disruptions. Uh, another factor is uh, really the length of the agreement, which has recently been ex- extended to the end of 2022. Um, this provided a stable time frame for OPEC Plus. Uh, For instance, instance, we saw this recently when OPEC plus was not able to reach on a way forward for a couple of weeks, they fell back on the existing agreement. Um, Also, the ability of producers to reach compromises on output decisions and maintain the cohesion within the group is another distinguishing feature, I would say. Um, Also, the holding of the JMMC meetings on a monthly basis to monitor the compliance of participating countries um, also contributed to the high compliance. Um, I would also say the introduction of a new compensation mechanism for countries to make up for pass production, which acted as an additional tool to put pressure uh, to achieve better compliance. Um, but perhaps more important is that OPEC plus has shown proactiveness and flexibility by adjusting out the policy almost on a monthly basis to respond to the increased short and ser- short-term uncertainty. Another feature I would say has been the willingness of Saudi Arabia to act independently and to take additional measures beyond the OPEC plus agreement by making substantial additional unilateral cuts. Um, A final feature is the ability to continue to surprise the market with key decisions and creating this sense of uncertainty and surprise about OPEC plus decisions, I would say, has been an effective tool in shaping market sentiment and expectations.
0: Well, I think, yeah, certainly using Surprise as a policy tool has kept many uh, oil market analysts, including myself, on their toes this year and tracking the OPEC Plus meetings with uh, quite a amount of uh, scheduling and rigor this year. But one of the points that you brought out there, I, I always found quite shocking about the original terms of this deal when it was agreed in April 2020 was just how long it was going to be in place for. Even at that point, it was um, announced there's going to be two years Uh, in length. And as you said, it's going to be extended now until the end of 2022. Do you think that this kind of cooperation among the large producers within OPEC Plus, who ostensibly are are competing for the same share of oil demand, is going to last in perpetuity?
1: Well, it depends on the the time rise you take. Uh, For instance, in this current cycle, and against most expectations, uh, the relations uh, between Saudi Arabia and Russia continue to strengthen Uh, Following the breakup of the OPEC Plus agreement in March 2020, Um, there were some divergent uh, views between the UAE and the rest of OPEC Plus, but this was eventually resolved. At the end of the day, uh, Edward, you know what unites OPEC Plus is the belief that through cooperation, countries could smoothen the revenue path, and members could obtain higher revenues compared to a situation where every producer maximizes production and competes for market share. And no one joins uh, OPEC uh, plus to do the group a favor. And I believe that this idea that countries within the group can withstand lower oil price for a long period of time without this affecting their economic growth and public finances, and that they are resilient to a prolonged period of low oil prices. Actually, history and data suggest that this is really not the case. Um, having said that, if one uh, takes a longer horizon And as the energy transition accelerates, divergence is expected to widen. And I think this is due, uh, first of all, to the initial conditions, because there's a huge difference in terms of the level of development of the energy sector, the size and quality of resources, the level of sophistication of oil exporting economies, uh, also better access to technologies. Uh, But also in terms of policies, some countries are pursuing more ambitious energy transition policies. Uh, Therefore, um, there will be a group of countries that would be able to achieve better outcomes in terms of economic diversification and increase the resilience of their energy sectors. And there will be another group whose diversification will go very slowly and their energy sector will fall behind in terms of efficiency and reducing emissions. And to me, really, a key question is whether the current framework can ensure that cooperation continues if the transition accelerates and the diversions become wider? And I think the answer is yes, you know, there is a role, uh, because I believe that the transition will not be uniform across the globe and it will not be linear and there will be dislocations. And in such an environment, there's a role for OPEC plus to play um, a role both in rising and falling markets, even in a world transitioning to net zero emissions. Um, but, Should producers broaden the scope for cooperation? For instance, uh, is cooperation on decarbonizing technologies such as CCUS one way forward? I do think so. And the recent announcement of the net zero producer forum in which Saudi Arabia and Qatar are members is a very encouraging step. And I think it's beneficial for other producers to join such forums. This could enhance their position as a coherent group and help advance their interest in climate change negotiations.
0: Now, when we look at the the actual kind of action that OPEC Plus has taken the last year, uh, you know, this enormous, or this decision to to cut an enormous amount of production, we had almost 10 million barrels a day taken off in the second quarter last year, and that's being incrementally uh, restored back to the market. One of the narratives that has been surrounding the increase in oil prices we've had really on a sustained basis since the middle of last year is that they're not going to be able to rally forever because there's so much of this extra OPEC plus oil just waiting in the wings. It could come back very quickly uh, and flood the markets with extra crude. But I would want to question how much of that capacity is, is actually really freely available and is perhaps the market even tighter than those estimates of capacity might suggest?
1: well um, the buffer in the form of spare capacity is likely to be lower than consensus estimates Uh, some of the opec plus countries such as algeria angola nigeria may not be in a position to restore production to the base levels agreed uh, by opec plus back in april 2020. Uh, i believe the shock has hit investment and activity in their all sectors quite hard and what we're likely to see is that as opec plus members start increasing their production to meet higher quotas between uh, August 2021 and September 2022, uh, compliance will automatically improve. And we will see some of the countries actually starting to even involuntarily compensate for their Passover production. Um, but having said that, we don't see very tight markets in 2022. Um, our balances are showing that under certain conditions, such as the potential increase from Iran if sanctions are lifted, uh, OPEC plus releasing the balance back into the market, and very uncertain demand picture. And even assuming a modest U.S. share growth, the market could switch into a surplus in some quarters in, two th- in 2022. Uh, but, but even if it does, uh, the market will remain supported, the spare capacity will be thin. And um, and though there might be stock built in some month in 2022, uh, we think that will be that will be modest
0: right now to draw on uh, you know a few of the points you've you've addressed in terms of the the necessity of the kind of coordination and decision making across the the OPEC plus alliance you know we've had in particularly in related to that issue about capacity we've had a pretty severe challenge i think to uh, the integrity of OPEC plus um, at the start of July, 2021, when the UA init- UAE initially failed to endorse the deal, that would see the production um uh, return to markets incrementally from August onwards. And mainly that was based on an est- uh, a belief that the measure of its production capacity was too low. And as you noted, we've had a deal that's been reached a few uh, weeks later, but are we at risk that we could have further threats to the integrity of the producers' alliance if other countries push back against their production allocations, whether or not they could even uh, hit the targets that are allocated to them? Have we kind of solved some of the in- inherent tensions within OPEC plus or, as you noted, we go through these monthly meetings. Do we risk having this kind of volatility on a more regular basis?
1: I, I don't think it is of the interest of anyone within the group uh, for the current agreement uh, to collapse. At the end of the day, this is an agreement that has brought massive benefits to all those involved. Uh, you know, The market has rebalanced, stocks have been drawn down, prices have recovered. And above all, I would say OPEC plus credibility in managing the market has been very much enhanced during the cycle. Um, Why would OPEC um, plus give all this away, Uh, especially that there are still many uncertainties in the market? Um, Also, if one looks at the history of OPEC plus, uh, producing countries have always managed to reach compromises if given time and if negotiations are carried behind closed doors. I, also say, I would also say that the market conditions are also now different, it's true from March 2020. But generally, I think that the memories of March 2020 are still fresh in everyone's mind. And there is no an ambiguity about the response of key producers. If some producers don't abide by the agreements, other producers will respond. I will, I will argue that this is really not a one-shot game or a game where the players are second guessing the response of other players. Uh, This is different from March 2020, when perhaps some were testing the response of the others and their willingness to shift policy, or questioning their capability in implementing large increase in supplies. I think everyone now has better information about willingness and capability and the reaction of the other players.
0: Right. And to to pull on that thread of of OPEC wanting to provide certainty um, for a longer time period out until the end of next year. There's obviously quite a few variables that have been playing out on the sidelines of the OPEC plus deals. Uh, One of which you've alluded to already are the uh, ongoing negotiations about Iran returning to the oil market, Will we see a revival of the, the JCPOA, the Iran Nuclear uh, agreement. The U.S. ended its participation in May 2018, and a revival of the deal would presumably remove sanctions on the export of Iranian crude. Now, Iran's production has already been recovering quite strongly this year, going up from around 2 million barrels a day at the end of 2020 to about 2.5 million barrels a day halfway through the year. If we were to get a deal signed, for instance, theoretically tomorrow, um, how would OPEC Plus be able to integrate Iran into a production cut agreement?
1: Uh, edward i have to say that the timetable for the return of iranian barrels remain um, highly uncertain i think both the u.s and iran want to reach an agreement uh, but the u.s and iran's position are still far apart and it will really take time to iron you know the remaining issues uh, so finalizing the agreement can take time and could extend to 2022 and in the absence of a deal iran's export really cannot rise very much from here as so far it's only china's refineries that have shown willingness to pick up Iranian crude. But even with the revival of Iran's nuclear deal, I would say that the increase could be moderate. Uh, Iranian exports of crudes and condensates have already risen during January, May of this year, which could imply that the increase from here would be more moderate, around 1 to 1.2 million barrels per day. And if demand recovers, as some are expecting, this could be absorbed into the market. I would say that within OPEC plus only when Iran reaches its October 2018 level, there will be discussion on how to bring it back into the OPEC plus agreement. Uh, so for the moment, really, I don't see Iran disrupting uh, OPEC plus dynamics uh, at least for, at least not for the next few months.
0: right. Now one of the other major uncertainties and I think one that probably most OPEC plus decision makers will have been watching quite closely and and with some bemusement is that we've not really seen a a very immediate supply response from the U.S., particularly from the shale patch in response to oil prices going substantially higher. You would think that with the WTI curve, you know, at $65 a barrel plus uh, for about the next year and a half, that offers an enormous amount of opportunity for hedging and for capital expenditure to happen. But we haven't really seen that happen. happened just yet. Oil production in the U.S. fell from about 13 million barrels a day uh, in February 2020 to about 11 million barrels a day by the middle of the year. And it's kind of hung around that level for the last couple of about the last year and a half. But on a long term basis, we've we've obviously seen the U.S. emerge as a much larger oil producer uh, with the ability to increase production quite quickly. And we've had some arguably clunky attempts from OPEC Plus to try and deal with the the threat posed to their market share uh, from the U.S. shale. On a more of a longer term basis though, how do you feel that uh, OPEC Plus producers integrate the U.S. into global oil markets?
1: Well, um, one one of the most interesting aspects of the U.S. shale is really its relative responsiveness to price signals uh, compared to other parts of the non-OPEC supply. And, uh, but unlike the 2014-2016 cycle, US share response to the COVID-19 shock was very sharp and very fast. Um, Between March and May 2020, output declined by something, almost 2.4 million barrels per day. And as prices started recovering in May 2020, shut in wells were brought back into production and output did recover. But as of today, US share production is still below its pre-shock levels. Um, I would say that the quick response on the downside reveals the cracks in the business model, even before the COVID 19 shock. Um, you know, producing at whatever cost and without generating cash flows was simply not viable. There is now a wide belief that um, US share producers have endorsed the principle of capital discipline. And despite the rise in the price that we have seen uh, recently and the better prospects, the improved cash flows have been used to reduce debt and return money to the shareholders and this view of capital discipline is actually supported by the capex guidance of the us shale sector where capex bu- bu- budgets are expected to increase only marginally in 2021 so at least for 2021 us shale is really not proving disruptive for the oil market and opec plus the recovery in us shale is also to be is also proving to be slower than many expected and i think this has deeper implication uh, you know the idea that us shale is an alternative to OPEC spare capacity and that it can be switched on off fairly quickly. I believe this is no longer, and actually it was never valid. Um, But having said that, US shale will remain an important part of the supply curve, and we will see it respond to price signals, especially that at current prices, um, some operators are repairing balance sheet, and it will eventually push for higher output. In 2022, we expect US shale uh, to grow uh, year on year by around seven hundred thousand barrels per day, and if prices are maintained at, at around current levels, we could see even strong response in two thousand and twenty three. So I would say that two thousand twenty one, two thousand twenty two, it's not likely very much to affect OPEC plus dynamics, um, but you know we cannot basically uh, exclude the possibility that the U.S. share could come strongly in two thousand twenty three and beyond.
0: Right, and and I think one of the The kind of reaction tools that we've seen from the OPEC Plus uh, Alliance, you know, it's it's real functionality, its main policy tool seems to be either to increase or decrease production. Now, with a group that represents somewhere on the order of about 50% of global uh, oil supply, that's a very powerful, but quite a blunt instrument. It kind of seems to me that OPEC Plus suffers from the same challenge that a lot of developed market central banks are facing right now with rates near zero, or they have very extensive asset purchase programs. As soon as they signal that they want to get to a return to kind of more textbook type policy, financial markets go into hysterics. And so we have similarly uncertainty this past month in July about what OPEC Plus was going to do and oil markets going through quite a bit of volatility. Has the OPEC Plus uh, Alliance and their their kind of functionality of this on-off switch with respect to oil production entrenched a kind of boom and bust cycle in oil markets that we've largely seen since mid-2014, compared with a period of quite relative stability from about 2010
1: to 2014? Well, you know, the... Um... The, first, the fastest way to deal with the imbalance is uh, for producers to restrict output. Uh, uh, the, the market mechanisms do work, but they are slow due to the nature of the investment cycle and the capital intensity of the industry. Um, although OPEC plus countries have low physical costs of production, uh, the cost of running their economies is high. and They are highly reliant on oil revenues. Uh, what in one of our papers we described as the social cost of production is quite high. And there are questions on how long they can sustain a market uh, share policy. Really, for a market share policy to be effective, it requires a long time to push supplies out of the market and also to shift expectation to a lower price path. I just wonder how many OPEC plus countries can really pursue such a policy. Uh, But even if they could, I don't think such a policy is is necessarily optimal. Uh, When faced with shocks, um, especially temporary ones, attempts to offset this shock through output adjustment can smoothen the cycle and optimize revenues. And I believe that COVID-19 shock has many of the elements of a temporary uh, of a temporary shock. It's still a deep shock, but it's still a temporary
0: shock. Right. Now, yeah, but one of the issues that's um, not temporary and is going to be with us, seemingly for a kind of few generations going into the future, and you've already alluded to, The resilience of some countries within OPEC Plus is how they're going to respond to the energy transition. Now, most of the major producers within OPEC Plus seemingly have an acceptance of the necessity of the energy transition, and they've provided their nationally determined contributions as part of the Paris Climate Accord. In fact, the UE's already provided its second. But do you think that there is a, a divergence among the OPEC Plus producers in recognizing the immediacy of the challenges of the energy transition to a lower carbon or even a net zero economy? Are some prioritizing it uh, more in terms of driving their economic and oil market policies more than others?
1: Well, um, oil exporters are not a homogeneous group and their resilience and core sources of competitive advantage vary tremendously. Um, We are talking about a very diverse group with very different political and economic structure. Uh, very different levels of development, pursuing different policies, and with different level of of sophistication and integration of their energy sectors. So some countries are much better prepared to deal with the challenges of the energy transition. Um, I would also add uh, that quite importantly, some key oil exporters are not standing still, and they are evolving and responding to the challenges that the energy transition may bring. So it's a very diverse picture
0: out there. Sure. Well, you've you've anticipated one of my uh, follow-up questions on that is that we've seen a kind of trend among the big uh, IOCs, to to adapt to the the challenges posed by the energy transition and kind of be, seem to be moving towards a kind of energy holding company structure where they're not just invested into oil and gas production and export uh, or refinery, but also investments into renewables or into utilities and electricity state uh, systems. Is this a a model that you think some of the state-owned NOCs in in Gulf countries or uh, in other parts of the OPEC Plus Alliance could adopt? to make themselves resilient uh, as we go through the energy transition process?
1: Okay, let let me try to take that question in two parts. Um, You know, uh, I think those uh, NOCs need to compete both on costs and reducing emissions. It's not one dimension or the other. There's one one key area that many NOCs can compete on is cost. And many NOCs have low cost of extraction and production and can compete on reducing this cost further. They can also monetize their their reserves at a faster rate. But as I mentioned before, there are limits to this strategy as reliance on revenues can act as a constraint on such a policy. Though for some countries, this policy if implemented for a long time could result in some supply exiting the market and increase in revenues due to high market share could compensate for the lower oil prices. But even then, I would say, Oil, impor- oil importers can impose carbon taxes and capture part of the rent of the barrel from oil exporters. Um, uh, so that's why it's quite important that oil exporting countries and their own overseas uh, compete on dimensions other than costs and compete on reducing emissions to increase the resilience of the oil sector. Um, this involves reducing emissions in the production process, scope one and scope two emissions, and in the consumption of gas, and products derived from crude and natural gas, scope three emissions. And I would say that some oil and gas exporters, such as Saudi Arabia, are, are in a good uh, position compared to other producers due to the low carbon content of their crude and their heavy investment in infrastructure to reduce gas flaring and methane emissions. I think the real uh, challenges really lies in reducing emission from consumption of final, pro- final products. And that's where I think NOC should really take leadership in some technologies such as um, uh, CCUS. Um, it could be that from an oil exporter perspective or an NOC, investment in CCUS could lower the returns compared, let's say, to existing strategy of exporting unabated oil and gas. But I would say that this additional cost could be vital to improve the resilience of the energy uh, sector. But having said that, you know, shifting all the costs to oil and gas exporters alone is not viable especially if these costs are too high. And that's why I've been calling in my uh, publications for burden-sharing mechanisms. Um, So just basically to wrap it up, Edward, that it makes sense for NOCs to invest in renewables, particularly to integrate renewables with existing hydrocarbon infrastructure to reduce emissions in production. They have a clear competitive advantage, particularly in solar. Uh, They could also improve the the efficiency of the domestic energy use and optimize the energy mix. But at the end of the day, you know, margins and renewables cannot fully substitute for rents generated by the oil and gas sector. And transforming these companies into renewables and utilities is really not feasible nor optimal. Um, NOCs really should explore ways how to lengthen the life of their oil and gas in the energy mix and find ways to monetize their large reserve base In a profitable way and a world which is transitioning to net zero. Um, As I mentioned before this may mean lower returns but I'm confident that this will be still um, higher than some of the current projects that are being implemented in the region and done in the name of diversification.
0: All right well I think uh, I'll probably call us on time there as I I feel we could go on for hours discussing this and uh, into countless numbers of scenarios as to how economies uh, across the Middle East and other parts of the OPEC plus alliance do do adjust their economic structure and policy to the challenges posed by the energy diverse or energy transition story but i'd like to thank our guest this week Dr. Bassam Fatu, for joining us and providing some great analysis and insight into the decision making behind pro, uh, decision making process within OPEC plus and what it could mean for oil prices and and markets over the next 12 to 18 months, and also some of that longer term context for where the energy transition is going to lead uh, OPEC plus economies on a longer term basis. So thank you for joining us today on the Emirates MBD market matters podcast. More of our analysis and podcasts are available at www.emiratesmbdresearch.com. Thank you.